Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 35C, an interview on JFK and the press with Harold Holzer. I'm excited to welcome Harold Holzer back to the show today. Harold is the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute at Hunter College in New York City. He's the chairman of the Lincoln Forum and author of The Presidents vs. the Press, the endless battle between the White House and the media, from the founding fathers to fake news. Harold also recently appeared on the CNN docuseries Lincoln, Divided We Stand, and he's joined me previously to discuss how Lincoln, TR, and FDR each worked with and used the press. So we're back for number four. Welcome back, Harold. Thanks, Kenny. I didn't realize it. I thought it was three. I know. I was like, how many times is that? I'm feeling used. (laughs) (laughs) And we're just deepening our relationship, you know. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So. Before, <laughs> exactly. Um, before we dive into John F. Kennedy, let's set the stage. You know, JFK, he was elected president in 1960. What did the national media landscape look like when Kennedy was campaigning for and in the Oval Office? You know, where did Americans get their news? Who were the major players back then? So, so the difference between this and the other interviews we've done is that I kind of remember the <laughs> 1960 campaign. Yeah. Um, I was 11 years old. I was very, very smitten with JFK, I have to tell you. And uh, my cousins who lived across the street asked me to go with them to Idlewild Airport, now JFK, to see Kennedy arriving uh, in New York. Uh, But I didn't go. I still regret that I never (laughs) caught a glimpse of him in person. They they did. Because in those days, it was like an Air Force One thing. You come down the steps... But there was no security, no, no <laughs> right. Everyone's on the tarmac, me. waving, yeah. Right. He just come down onto the tarmac and he waved. Um, anyway, so I, it was actually still an era of newsreels. And I'll tell you how I remember that. I remember going with my friends to see the movie Psycho that year. <laughs> yeah. And it was, a, it was a double feature with another scary movie. And um, in between, there was a newsreel. And the newsreel showed... John Kennedy campaigning. Uh, so you still got to see bits and pieces on Fox Movie Tone News in 1960. And of course, the country was saturated with television at that point. Um, and everyone had black and white TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone watched the news at the same time. You know, it was not 24-hour news. Uh, but everybody watched the local news at around 6, 6.30, and the mm-hmm. national news at 7, which is mm. Eastern time. It's it's more like 6.30 now, so they could get back to money-making prime time. So it, the, the, the news was much more a unified thing, like so many yeah. other things then, compared to now. It wasn't fractured. It wasn't online. Uh, it wasn't um, that a blogger from Duluth <laughs> had as much authority as Walter Cronkite. There were authority figures like Cronkite on CBS and Huntley and Brinkley on NBC um, and Howard K. Smith on ABC. And they were who people trusted and listened to. And then we got our morning in my family, morning and afternoon papers because you had to go through the papers. So it was a totally different culture. Newspapers were really important. Magazines, which are gone from our culture. Um, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, mm-hmm. U.S. News and World Report, the push of candidates to, and celebrities to get into those magazines was um, was huge. So it was, I mean, it's like talking about ancient times. But I, again, sorry to say I remember it well. I, I'm just impressed that you saw Psycho at age 11. I was much more scared of scary movies than you, you were know, at that age. We had no supervision. <laughs> so, uh, diving more into this, I saw a stat that in 1950, 9%, 9% of American households owned a TV, but by 1960, 90% did, 10 times. Yeah. So, when in that decade did JFK realize, you know, TV might be a medium I can really excel at? Yeah, it's hard to know, but um, when he ran for the Senate in the 50s, well, Congress, he ran, you know, kind of a traditional door-to-door campaign. Mm -hmm. And the 56, I think he was a 
candidate for re-election to the Senate. I think so. And um, he was using television. And he was using television with his wife, mm -hmm. who was equally photogenic. Mm -hmm. And um, Jackie I saw once on the street. So there we go. Got my Jackie spotting once. Um, and she was, you know, she was less charismatic than she was later, but she was, they were uh, in like a Hollywood couple. Yeah. They were pursued by photographers, but they were also television celebrities. I don't know. When do you realize that you look like a movie star and you can act <laughs> like a movie star? They both looked like movie stars and they, uh, you know, in his case, with a great deal of substance. So we don't know the moment, but he was using television commercials early. And then, of course, in 1960, um, the, there was this very sharp and apparent contrast between um, Kennedy and Nixon that you could see on TV. One was made for TV and one had a face that was perfect for radio. Is this <laughs> And, you know, one of the moments where you really saw that clear was that famous 1960 debate. They are on stage together. Uh, the first yeah. televised debate in U.S. history. So I'd love to, I'm curious, you know, where did this idea come from in the first place to do a televised debate? And had yeah. presidential candidates ever attempted anything close? Like, had there ever been radio debates or in-person debates, you know? No, they, they, they you know, the, the closest thing was the Lincoln-Douglas Senate tradition from 102 years earlier. This was a network idea. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, now it's the Presidential Debate Commission, right. which is sort of an autonomous entity with its own rules. They're going to have an interesting time next year in oh, yeah, 2024 because um, there's going to be some resistance. So it was uh, organized by the networks and it was a new phenomenon. Now, Nixon should have known better than to present the way he did because he <laughs> saved his political career right. in 1952 with his checker speech for which he rented a theater yeah. in Hollywood, uh, got a camera crew, paid for his own time, and by all accounts saved his political career. Even though, you know, I've seen recordings of the speech, it's not my cup of tea. He's still <laughs> smarmy to me. Yeah. But so he gets to the studio. Nobody on his staff has asked what color the background will be for this mm -hmm. event. Mm -hmm. It's gray, and he's wearing a gray suit. So oh, no. Problem number one. Yeah. Number two, he's using the wrong kind of makeup or too little makeup. Kennedy's person, yeah. his TV person, who had been a movie person, runs out to, it's like our going to a CVS or something or a Rite Aid, um, he happens to find a drugstore and he buys, I think, something called Maybelline Egyptian. And he brings it up to Kennedy yeah. while he's sitting in the chair. And Kennedy says, you're not putting that stuff on me. And the guy says, trust me. And he applies the makeup. Um, he had the Hollywood, maybe it was Max Factor, not Maybelline, whatever it was, sure. it brought, out, it brought out the best. Yeah. And he looked, And he looked terrific. And it's not I, I can see why both candidates might think, like, I can do this TV thing. You know, Nixon, as you said, in 1952, right. it seemed like his career, he might be dumped from the Eisenhower ticket. He goes on TV, runs student, does this great job, saves his career. JFK, his dad made it rich in Hollywood. Like, you know, the, Hollywood's part of that family's history, too. So you can That's see why, why they true. would both think, like, yeah, we can do this. We can do this. Yeah. Now, the story goes, and, and you talked about this a little bit. You touched on maybe why this might be, that folks who watched the debate thought Kennedy won, and those who listened thought Nixon won. So how did Kennedy approach the debate differently? You know, was it as simple as these things as Nixon's people weren't really thinking about the TV medium and Kennedy's were? Were there other things they did differently? First of all, that, that great story has no uh, um, statistic behind it. Oh, really? There's no provable fact. It's, it's kind of like urban legend. There were no polls to, to ask radio listeners or TV viewers whom they preferred. But anyway, it's a great story. And it's, you know, been around so it's been around for 60 years now, so people believe it. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think they they both knew their issues. You know, and again, I feel like such an old person. Um, but I remember the watching the debate with my parents and my sisters. Um, 
And I just remember they talked about Kuimoi and Matsu, uh, the islands that we have completely forgotten. It has something to do with Taiwan. Yeah. Uh, or as they, as J- JFK called it, Formosa. He put sure. an ER at the end, Formosa, <laughs> um, which was the, uh, the, the island of Formosa. Yeah. The yeah. island of Formosa uh, with a little New England clip at the end. Um, and it was a, mostly a national security debate. It was who would out-hawk the other. Mm. And I think the, the Kennedy was concerned that he would be considered um, too permissive as far as the Russians were concerned. In mm. fact, he was very, very hawkish, something that Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, in whose one-time home I work now, mm. uh, was not too happy with Kennedy. But she didn't, she didn't support him at the 1960 right. convention that she was kind of nasty about him later. I don't know if you know the story. She was on Meet the Press and asked was asked what she thought about Kennedy and she said, "Well, there's a story going on going around the Senate that someone came up to him and said, "Jack, I'd like to see a little less profile and a little more courage." That is a stinging remark. That she attributed it to some unknown other third party, but she said it on telev- a live television. Yeah. When everybody watched Meet the Press, again, that's another universal, uh, uh, like the old coffee, whatever it's called, water cooler days, uh, when you watched uh, a Seinfeld episode and talked about the Seinfeld <laughs> episode. I'm trying to be yeah. relevant, Kenny, to your generation. <laughs> Seinfeld, but, you got me. <laughs> yeah, the universal hearth that's sadly gone now. Anyway, so I think they prepared as if they were just having an interview. Uh, and they were both very well prepared. Just that one looked very calm, and the other looked sweaty. Right. And right. you know, he had a fight. He he should have shaved. You know, right. taken an electric shadow. razor right before he went on. Yeah. And and continue to paint this picture for me because I hadn't thought about this. You mentioned you and your family were all sitting around the TV. Was this part of that? What was it? Six thirty or seven p.m. national news? Like every household's watching this thing. Yeah, it was. There were things that were watched by. Everybody, I mean, right up to the to the finale of MASH. I think that was probably right. the last instance, even more so. I was talking about Seinfeld. But, you know, there's a story in New York City that um, there were no commercials. And I don't know if you're, if you're old enough to remember this. The final episode of MASH at Alan Alda's insistence was, in fact, I've talked to him about this, was commercial free. Wow. And at the end of MASH... New York City's water supply was completely depleted within about two minutes because everybody who was holding it in for MASH went to the bathroom and flushed their toilets at the same time. And new, the water supply did not, almost failed. The pressure almost failed in the entire city. That's an amazing story I had not heard before. It's this great, is what I bring you on for, Harold. You've got the good right, stuff. Right, it's not about Kennedy. It's about yeah. these side, these tributaries. So once Kennedy gets in office, uh, he continues to leverage television by introducing live televised press conferences. Where did this idea come from and uh, how effective were they for him? Well, he knew that Eisenhower had introduced the live television press conference. Um, And I've seen a a video of it. In fact, anybody can YouTube all of this stuff. Um, And, um, you know, he stood in the executive office building now called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building, right across the, the the lawn from the White House in the opposite direction as the Oval Office. Mm-hmm. And he stood with a window behind him. So just to start, he wasn't going to look his did. best. Yeah. yeah, Eisenhower did. And he starts out by saying, well, I'm not sure this is going to work, but we're going to try this. And he stood the whole, you know, he stood with his hands again. Anyway, he, he was crabby about it. Um, so Kennedy... Kennedy's people, well, first of all, Kennedy said, let's go around the press in the same manner as FDR did when he did his fireside chats. Mm. But Kennedy did a lot more press conferences than Roosevelt did fireside chats. Mm. Um, Roosevelt did, uh, you know, 28 or 29, depending on where you count. And Kennedy did, I don't know, 100 live press conferences in, in three years or so two and a half years. And um, so the the... They were going to do it in the East Room, which is where most presidents have done it. 
but they put out a feeler for RSVPs and they got 415 <laughs> RSVPs. So they had just built the new State Department in Foggy Bottom. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if people realize that that's where they took place. I, yeah, Kennedy, I've seen a video of it. It's like a like a, a large room, like huge amount a, of seats. It's an auditorium and it's yeah. got raked seating. So, you know, it's got seating that goes up theater style, mm-hmm. um, but even at a sharper angle than a theater. And what they loved about it is, A, it was brand new. You know, Kennedy was brand new. The oh, yeah. theater was very modern. And here are the things they introduced. A dark blue background. Right. You never see a public official now without a dark blue background. That was invented <laughs> because Kennedy would look great against it. Yeah. A podium with the seal of the president. Right, right. Never used before. Never used before. They figured it would lend authority to this very young man. Right. Uh, and give gravitas to him. Um, and and so he did it. He experimented with it. And the, the other thing is, of course, he was gifted. He was just enormously talented at this. He was, he was well-informed. He was witty. He could be serious. He was as good at the TV as, as FDR was at radio. And it was like the man and the medium just met perfectly. And as you say, proliferation of, of television, I think people went for, you know, probably went to 90% from 90% penetration to 99 during Kennedy's presidency. So people could could up, put, uh, keep up with him. So he was, he was great at it. I just find it interesting that um, he had to get in a motorcade to go there. Less, <laughs> he had to get in a motorcade to go to Foggy Bottom. Yeah. Yeah, I had to go up past the Mayflower Hotel and less of a production now to move them and they didn't close the whole town. Yeah. And what, were these things broadcast live or is it yes. something the nightly news would chop up later? Oh, so- no. They were live and they were in the afternoon. Nice. Um, I remember I would rush. I lived when I was in junior high school, middle school, as they say. Yeah. Um, my school was only, you know, a block from my house. So yeah. I would move it. I would hightail it out of there at 3 o'clock because they were 4 o'clock. And I loved them. I watched them uh, live. And, uh, I, you know, I waited for th- – there was a – there were two women members of the White House Corps. Uh, and they were both a little bit eccentric and flaky. <laughs> One was a woman named Sarah McClendon who was a Texan. Who ran something called the McClendon News Service, and it was like a news service with one person. Mm-hmm. No one knew who was picking up her stuff. And she would ask a question with this very southern Texan accent. So she was a trip. Yeah. But the most eclectic was this woman named Mae Craig. She had been in the room at FDR's press conferences. I've heard, or I've seen transcripts where he teases her. You know, it was really sexist in, the, in World War II. They were, mm-hmm. She was the only woman at one point. Then there were two. Yeah. And he would say, May, oh, so, uh, somebody says to Roosevelt in World War II, Mr. President, there's so much security here. We were patted down to just to get in here to do this press conference. And Roosevelt says, May, were you patted down or do they have to have a special person to pat you down? Meaning you're a woman. So right. it, was, it was tough for this lady. But yeah. by 1960, she was older. She always wore a pillbox hat. I don't know if it was an homage to Jackie, but it's the same way that uh, there was a reporter who always wore a red dress in the Reagan era because Nancy wore red dresses. So mm. she thought Reagan would, and Reagan always called on her because he saw the red dress. Um, <laughs> May Cra- when so Kennedy's thing was, yeah, when things were getting dull, and he realized things were getting dull, he would say, "Miss Craig." And she would ask a loopy question. And he would just look at her. People would, he would just squint and smile. And he would say something like, well, I'll think about that, Miss Craig. Whatever he said, everybody cracked up. It was mean, but it was so funny how he handled her. So I have, I, I, I repeated, I, when I did my book, I watched almost every press conference of Kennedy's. Yeah. Because they're all available at, from the Kennedy Library online. Everybody should like watch at least a little bit of one to see what oh, it yeah. was then compared to today, and just how interesting. They should it's look up the president up there on his feet, you know, all the time, all the time, every week. And yeah. 
You know, the most famous one of the most famous was the one after the Bay of Pigs. Yeah, yeah. Which was a public relations, you know, disaster and a public policy disaster. If the viewers are unfamiliar with the episode, it was kind of a, uh, a an anti-communist landing in Cuba, which was supposed to be followed by a popular counter-revolution that would overthrow Castro. Last time yeah. I looked, it's 60, 62 years and the Castro and his his party is still in, Castro descendants are still in right. power. Anyway, right. it was a, it was awful. And Kennedy was in a terrible mood. Uh, and he blamed a lot of it on the press because the press wanted to write that there was an invasion getting underway. Hmm. And the CIA told Kennedy and he demanded that they prevent it from being published. And then when, and apparently this reporter found out that it was a flawed plan. And then when it failed, Kennedy said to the editor, why didn't you publish that story? It could have saved us a lot of trouble. And they said, because you wouldn't let us. And it's, that's not true. Anyway, but he went on TV and he did something that I don't know who the last president is who did this. Maybe it was JFK in 1961. He said, he took the blame and he said, uh, uh, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. Uh, you know, it's a kind of a cliche, but he quoted it and basically said, as Truman used to say, the buck stops here. And I, I think he became more popular after that than he was before. He did. And I was actually going to ask about that. Bay of Pigs, his popularity hit its peak of his administration after the Bay of Pigs. And I believe he, he joked to a, a friend or a colleague, the worse I do, the more popular I get after that. Yeah. And I think he missed, I think he was being a little. Flipping. I think I'm sure he was. was. The reason was that he admitted his uh, that he had made errors, and um, you know, there was also a time that I still remember as a kid, up until Vietnam, certainly when if there was an international crisis, um, not that they measured the president's popularity every minute the way they do now, but. Um, Presidents, people would coalesce around the president. Mm. Um, you know, as as we're doing our conversation now, there's a crisis in the Middle East. Mm. Mm-hmm. Recently, President Biden, you know, made this overnight trip to Israel and uh, <coughs> gave a number of speeches. His his ratings did not move from where they'd been for two years. They didn't. Yeah, it's interesting how. Out of the historic norm we are. Uh, and, and so we talked a lot about Kennedy and the TV, but he did not neglect other media. What was no. his relationship with newspaper and or radio press like? And how did he leverage those relationships? Um, we don't think of Kennedy as a radio president. I mean, Reagan and Carter after him were radio presidents. Yeah. But I think he did the due diligence. Radio demanded its own time with him and certainly demanded a presence in press conferences. By the way, Kennedy did something that Biden should do, which is stop trying to memorize the names in advance. Um, Trump was better at it. I mean, if he would see people's hands raised and he would say, you, not you, I hate you, not you, you're a terrible journalist. I mean, that part was crazy. But he did call on people and it made them seem, it makes the press seem dependent on the president. Mr. President, Mr. President, instead of reading the names off a Delaney book, if if anybody ever asked me advice on Biden's press relations, that's what I would say. But Kennedy had a terrific relationship generally with the print press and didn't like the publishers, very much like mm. FDR, who yeah. liked the reporters and didn't like the publishers. Um, first of all, Kennedy had been a newspaper man, briefly. That's right. He covered the Nuremberg trials. He covered yeah. uh, the... Uh, the 1945 British elections, which he thought would be, you know, a validation of Churchill's great leadership and instead was the greatest upset in British election history, although some people saw it coming. Um, so he, he met people and he stayed friends with them. Plus, his father kind of owned and operated a number of newspaper men and publishers like Henry Luce was his father's buddy. That's one publisher that was friendly with the Kennedy. Time magazine, Life magazine. Yeah, and Time. Very powerful. And um, 
And, and you know, people like Arthur Crock, who was a very important columnist, was very close to uh, to Joe Kennedy. And when some and when um, who was it? Drew, not Drew Pearson, but Jack Anderson went on television saying Kennedy is the only Pulitzer Prize winning author who won the Pulitzer when his book was ghostwritten by someone else, <laughs> which was true. Yeah. Um, Crock criticized uh, Jack Anderson uh, and Kennedy Sr. said, I'm suing him. I'm suing him unless they retract it. Um, sounds familiar, right? You sue yeah. people if they criticize you. Yeah. Um, by the way, the story about Ted Sorensen, whom I knew slightly, uh, ghostwriting the book is not really true. Somebody ghostwrote it for Sorensen. <laughs> so but anyway, that, that's the um, uh, Profiles in Courage. <laughs> profiles in Courage. Yeah. Um, but let's go back to the print press. So he was one of them. Yeah. And he's friendly with people like Ben Bradley. Right. Uh, so what did this mean? It meant that he basically got a soft ride from the print press. And in two instances, again, there are echoes of the Roosevelt relationship. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if you'd call it cover-ups, but maybe you would. A, Kennedy had some serious health problems. Right. Kind of shocking for a young man in his early 40s. I mean, he had Addison's disease. Mm -hmm. uh, he was taking he was taking uh, medication mm -hmm. that made him heavy. Uh, um, you could see the change in him, in, in his face, for example. He was also, um, had terrible back problems. Right, um, right. And... Uh, I remember he had a woman doctor. It was my, I remember my parents considering considered it shocking that he had a woman doctor. <laughs> ja, uh, Janet something. I can yeah. see her in front of me. Um, he was taking uppers and downers. Right. He was on all sorts of narcotics. Yeah. So, uh, and then the other, of course, great suppression was Kennedy's extramarital affairs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the press knew about it, you know. They, 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 kind of conspiratorially, because it was a, a man's game. Sure. Yeah. And even though he was screwing around in the White House with a roster of, I mean, I just read about Marlena Dietrich, who was like in her sixties when she paid a conjugal visit to the White House. Um, and you know, he would send Jackie off on trips. Mm. Uh, even when she didn't want to go because he wanted mm -hmm. the mansion to himself. So he mm -hmm. was a naughty uh, boy. Yeah. I mean, the press said that's his private life. Uh, maybe it maybe it is. Maybe it should be off limits. I don't know. But it wouldn't be off limits today for sure. Yeah. So they knew about his health problems and they knew about his mistresses but didn't report They certainly knew about I wouldn't even call them mistresses. I would just call them like one one. There were some affairs, but there yeah. were also yeah. one night. His extramarital activities, proclivities. His extramarital activities, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was like the boys' network, so it wasn't it wasn't written about. Now, by the same token, again, he was crabby about the Bay of Pigs thing. Right. And he spoke, and I uncovered this speech. I mean, it's not a secret, but I, I came across the speech. He went to New York to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, which is now scandalously closed. Uh, for renovation forever and ever. But he went there to address the American Publishers. I think it's either the American or National Publishers Association. And he said to them, I was going to come here today and speak on a topic called the president and the press. But I, and that's the topic, but I was going to call it, and I had every right to call it, the president versus the press. When I read that speech, that's when I called my editor at uh, Dutton and said, may we change the title of the book from the <laughs> president and the press to the president's versus the press? Yeah. I'm not sure it was the smartest marketing decision I've ever made because it's harder to say, but we did. <laughs> and it was inspired by Kennedy. And he lectured them. He said, there, you know, if I had to choose between freedom of the press and national security, I would choose national security, mm. and you guys better be careful. He didn't say it that way, but that was right. the best. 
Interesting. So it was a complicated relationship. Also, he would storm around the White House. And first of all, he was a voracious reader and a speed mm-hmm. reader, which we yeah. all knew about at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he could thumb down a page and read left and right. It was wow. very fast. Um, but he also he, he used to walk around the executive wing taking people's papers and magazines. But then when he saw something he didn't like, he would cancel this. He would demand that the subscription be canceled. <laughs> and um, uh, I want the, he was he hated the Herald Tribune. The New okay. York Herald Tribune was published by John Hay Whitney. Yeah. Um, who was a Republican. Uh, he wouldn't fit into the Republican Party today. Sure. He was a sure. liberal Republican. You had moderate Republicans Republican. back then. Yeah. Yeah. And he was anti. He was a Rockefeller Republican. Rock, yeah. He was a liberal Republican. Yeah. Yeah, and he was opposed, uh, and Mr. Whitney's daughter, actually his stepdaughter, was married to someone who was in the Kennedy administration, who was my first boss. No kidding. Um, He was the deputy to Sergeant Shriver, who was Kennedy's brother-in-law. Everybody's family was well-employed. So (laughs) Shriver was the head of the Peace Corps. My guy, Bill Haddad... Uh, was the head of, was the deputy head of the Peace Corps, and he was married to John Hay Whitney's stepdaughter, and uh, she's still with us. Her name is Kate Roosevelt. She's actually FDR's granddaughter. Very oh my God! There are so many connections happening right now. There are a lot of connections, and she was she got me my Kate got me my first job with her nice. husband's paper. Um, but anyway, he hated the Tribune because they editorialized against him, so yeah. he demanded that the White House cancel. It's subscription to the Herald Tribune. Well, Jackie loved the Herald Tribune style section. It was like a big fashion. Before the Times did a style section. Before the Washington Post did a style section. The Herald Tribune introduced all that stuff. I'm trying to remember the name. It's actually a famous journalist. Charlotte Curtis, I think she ran it. So, um, And then so Jackie would secretly order them to reinstall the subscription. And he would walk around and see it. What is this doing here? I said, anyway. So it's complicated. complicated. That's, that's great. That's great. Um, now, now I'm curious. So JFK, he has these great relationships with the press. He has this mastery of the TV media. You know, you do that because you want to accomplish something. And you want these people to help you accomplish something. You want them to help you form opinions in the country. What were the big goals JFK was trying to move the American people on with his PR tactics? And was he successful? Kennedy was much better at rising to unexpected occasions. Mm. I mean, again, I'm going to... And if you keep inviting me back to talk about more current presidents, I'm going to bring my own stories into this. But I was very aware at age 14 and a half of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really took us to the brink. And it was scary. Uh, We had um, shelter drills in our high school. Um, And, um, you know, I didn't even have a homeroom. Our our high school was so crowded that our homeroom was the auditorium. Mm. Frankly, there was nowhere to shelter in a 500-seat auditorium with no desks. So, I mean, sheltering was insipid anyway. But During a nuclear attack, yeah. And they actually did an emergency. Talk about um, sadistic school principals. They actually rang a drill siren for us to – and we didn't know whether we were being bombed or having another drill. Oh, my drill. God, yeah. It was very tense. But I think I still think that was his, that was his finest moment um, for Kennedy – I would say that one of his major priorities was um, civil rights legislation, mm-hmm. and he had to he had to be he had to sacrifice his life uh, for civil rights legislation to be finally palatable to uh, um, you know a, a uh, majority of the Senate, you know a supermajority in those days. Right. Uh, you needed not 60 votes, but 67 votes. It was three quarters to overcome yeah. the filibuster. And, and But they, the difference was they really had – you couldn't just say, okay, we're invoking the filibuster. You had to talk without right, being right. interrupted. Um, they were like Mr. Smith goes to Washington. So he failed at the civil – and so if you look at his record, that that that's his, that was his biggest goal and it didn't come to pass. What I think he instilled is – 
a sadly vanished sense of national service with the Peace Corps. Mm. But that mm -hmm. is a sustained accomplishment, although we didn't get a ton of credit for it at the time. And the other thing he did that didn't get enough credit was his fostering of American arts. Um, right. Poets and writers and theater and yeah. his just by doing a famous recital in the White House with Pablo Casals, the, the cellist. Mm -hmm. um, that was Jackie's idea. But yeah. also by having um, Frederick March come in and read uh, Lincoln, that always gets me, to <laughs> a group of Nobel Prize winners. And, and he sat next to Pearl Buck, <coughs> now totally forgotten novelist who's one was the first American to win the Nobel Prize for Literature for The Good Earth and other colonialist <laughs> novels, which all of us read in, this, in the early 60s. And, you know, he had Faulkner and Hemingway. So he, he, it was a celebration of American art and talent. Mm -hmm. So he was, I think he was a significant symbolic president and also a significant transgenerational president because... Uh, he was the first American president born in the uh, in the twentieth century, and he was and he was not a he was a World War II veteran, but a young, dashing one, not an older general. Right, and it was right. transformational. So just the spirit, the attitude, getting young people involved, I think that was his enduring accomplishment. It's so interesting to me that he was he's so famous for being so good on the media, so good on TV, so good with public relations. But it wasn't enough to get actually any legislation done. It was those other kind of almost intangibles that, you yeah. know, he was able to achieve through it. It was, you know, it was a Democratic Congress, but it was, as FDR discovered when he when he did the New Deal. Yeah. If you didn't do a carve out that right. impaired black people's access to these new federal programs, you weren't going to get them passed. So tragically, Social Security did not include farm workers or right. domestic workers. Right. Why? Because the Southerners did not want, um, you know, uh, tenant farmers or sharecroppers yeah. or or cooks and 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 maids yeah. to get money to have right. means. Jobs predominantly held by minorities. Yeah. You know, the Civilian Conservation Corps had camps for black people and separate camps, most of the camps for white huh. people. Uh, the housing that was provided in housing plans was segregated. Right. So there right. was a lot of concessions. And you can't make those concessions for civil rights legislation. <laughs> no, you can't. FDR never even advanced the, an anti-lynching law right. with all of the pressure that came from Eleanor yeah. uh, to do that. It seems simple, but he couldn't risk the majority. So anyway, that's why um, Kennedy's progress was stalled. And it took a Southerner with a supermajority in 19, you know, winning, defeating Goldwater by, you know, Oodles of 30 votes. points. Yeah. <laughs> um, so JFK, we, we take him to the end of his presidency, November 22nd, 1963. JFK is assassinated. What role did media play in the national experience and reaction to that tragedy? Um. I will say one thing, though, to link all of my subjects together, and in fact, to link these almost mystically connected presidents who died a century mm -hmm. apart. Both of them had a vice president named Johnson. Mm -hmm. um, we used to, like, as kids, get off on these coincidences. You know, uh, Lincoln was shot in a theater. Mm -hmm. um, how did this go? Lincoln was shot in a theater... And his um, assassin was was killed or shot to death in a barn, which is a was a tobacco warehouse. Okay. Lee Harvey Oswald shot Kennedy from a tobacco warehouse from a warehouse. I'm sorry, from a warehouse, a okay, a book depository. And was yeah. captured in a theater. God. We used to, you know, um, when you don't have the internet <laughs> to keep you entertained. I know this is what we did. Lee Kennedy had a secretary named Mrs. Lincoln. Lincoln mm, had right. a guard named named Kennedy. Mm. Um, I mean, every guard was named Kennedy, but that's another story. But you know, it was the biggest story of this. Uh, you know, since World War Two. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, 
the the reporters who were on the scene became superstars. People like mm-hmm. um, um, Tom Wicker of the New York Times happened to be in Dallas. So they filed every minute. Dan Rather was a CBS reporter in Texas. He's a Texan. He yeah, became... Yeah. And of course, it was wall-to-wall coverage, interrupted programs. And again, you know, I watched live as Lee Harvey Oswald was killed. We were all watching right. just to see Lee Harvey Oswald you know, stupidly walked across a public, a semi-public area filled with journalists to get from one cell to his booking, his arraignment that I don't think ever happened. But, oh, it was the last unifying experience. It was the Mm. weekend when all the football games were canceled and beginning on Friday, um, we watched everything. The coffin, Johnson's going into the plane, Johnson's Mm. speech, Mrs. Kennedy is still standing there in the blood-stained mm-hmm. pink suit because she didn't want people, she wanted people to see the blood. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the plane lands and, of course, the lying in state and the funeral and the little John salute and all right. of that, we we all watched it live. That's We were glued to it. And that's the first time I remember that kind of incessant... Coverage. Um, it was a it was a harbinger of what cable news would become in the nineties, mm-hmm. uh, but it was, and it was a you know it's very sad and tear evoking experience, but it was also a unifying experience. Right. Um, and it's not unusual that a martyred president would be elevated into you know instant deification it, it, with all of the you know controversies forgotten the fact that Kennedy right. basically won the election by a hundred thousand votes in, in right. among you know 50, 60 million cast um, it, it, it it changed Lincoln from a controversial partisan figure into a, a demigod as well and it did right. the same thing for, for for Kennedy one of the fascinating things about JFK is how often people attribute successes to him that he he had nothing to do with, you know, or they say he did so much. It's like, wait, what did he really accomplish? Or he did civil rights. No, LBJ did civil rights, things like that. So I'm I'm curious, how did his associates, you know, the people from his White House, people who knew him, use media and the press to eulogize him and build this mystique and mythology to, to create this view we now have of JFK? That's a great question. I mean, everybody's, all of Trump's associates are writing Trump books. Uh, All of the journalists who covered him, you know, from uh, the TV guys like Jim Acosta to uh, my friend Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who covers him every day for the Times, um, have written books. Doesn't seem to do much to alter his positive and negative ratings. His fans are resolute. His enemies are resolute. But I think you're absolutely right that Arthur Schlesinger wrote a thousand days. Um, the, the, and, and with Jackie coined the idea of the thousand days being like Camelot, you know, the doomed, uh, um, special place of Lords and ladies and nobility. Uh, Ted Sorensen wrote a great book about the administration. So, of course, they all contributed to it, as as did the journalists, who, by the way, all wrote in their, ultimately in their memoirs, yes, we knew all about the dilly-dallying and the dalliances, right. but, you know, we didn't, we didn't do that. Yeah, it was a machine, and it started on November 22nd, and it went on for a couple of years. I do think it actually helped. Lyndon Johnson, as did the radicalism of his opposition, mm-hmm. um, the extremism of the of the opposition. For sure. Um, yeah, but the Kennedy mystique was very strong. You know, the beautiful family mm. moved on, and uh, uh, they were lionized. And uh, you know, I keep saying, keep your eye on um, Jack Schlossberg. I don't know if any of your Listeners will remember his convention speech, not not during this convention, but during I think the Hillary yeah. convention. He's Kennedy's 
a grandson, Caroline's son, and he oh. is great looking guy yeah. with a really good voice. Not quite John's voice, but in that in that tenor timbre that uh, that uh, John, Bobby, and Teddy had. Uh, and uh, very good looking. And uh, he is, I think he's spending a lot of time in Australia because Caroline is ambassador to Australia now. Hmm. So, um, so you but, think this is the next Kennedy? Keep an eye on. I don't know. You know, which is one of the funny things. The Kennedy family is the only family where we're like, who's the next Kennedy to keep an eye on? Well, you know, those of us who were smitten as kids imagined a dynasty, and, and yeah. frankly, you know, the I think Robert Kennedy would have been president in 1968 yeah. had he not been assassinated. I think Teddy would have been president had it not been for Chappaquiddick. So. Right. Right. Uh, maybe not both of them, but right. Teddy, if not for Chappaquiddick, Bobby first, if not right. for you know dying before the convention. So yeah, yeah, it's uh, they were very talented people there and very appealing, very appealing people. Uh, and you know, Caroline is in um, is been in public service. She's been ambassador to Japan, mm-hmm. uh, and she's still in the diplomatic corps. She didn't. It didn't work for her to be an elected official. She was mm-hmm. going to be an appointed senator from New York hmm. uh, when when uh, um, when there was a vacancy. But she decided that she didn't like the press. You have to like the press if you're in politics, or like or yeah. like parrying with them. Right. Right. Uh, what is JFK's legacy in terms of how did he change the presidential relationship with the media, or change presidential PR, and all that? Well, his legacy with the press is that the press believes now, and this was only amplified by its success in bringing Nixon down, but it believes it should have total access. Hmm. When we hear President Biden walking away after a speech and hearing people yelling questions, it's because they are implying that they have and deserve constant opportunity to quiz the president. It's a little more mm. mean-spirited now yeah. than it was in the Kennedy era. But the legacy is that there should be access, that there generally should be press conferences, you know, opportunities, mm. and it should be frequent. It's not anymore, but that's the legacy. And the legacy of the, of the, uh, of the person that the press believes it created, but really created itself on television is just youthfulness. You know, Kennedy never will grow old. He's frozen in time as a figure of promise. And even if the promises couldn't be kept because time ran out, that eternal promise of, uh, of, uh, uniting people and leading and, uh, showing the best of our country is, well, you know, that's, it's like the eternal flame at Arlington. It's eternal. It's an eternal flame. The last question I've got for you, uh, when, when I talked to you about FDR, I mentioned there was this 2021 C-SPAN presidential historian survey where historians yes. were asked to rank all the presidents on a variety of factors, including public persuasion. And this was a survey you participated in. So I'm curious if you remember how you ranked JFK on public persuasion and why. You know, I, I think I marked him the highest you could mark him. Yeah. Um, uh, because, you know, I think it was a 10 uh, because of his, his mastery of the television medium. And uh, um, but I will I will say that I think the only reason that Donald Trump did not come in in last place right. in the 2020 <laughs> survey is that there were historians, including me. Yeah. Who ranked him very high in public persuasion. Yeah. I mean, you can't lie, because, or I can't, because you want the person you dislike so much to be the very, you know, behind yeah. um, uh, Herbert Hoover and, and Johnson. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But they didn't communicate. Trump sure knows how to communicate. Yeah. And he, like Kennedy and like FDR, mastered a new medium, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Twitter, X, Truth mm-hmm. Social, whatever it's called now. And he was he was brilliant at it. He didn't do any work as president, but he f- tweeted 20, 20 times a day, um, and that really worked. Yeah. In 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 two thousand and sixteen. 
and 2020. I think it's undeniable to say that Trump has had an impact on the public with yeah. the way his outreach We're waiting is. for something new, the, the AI candidate. There we go. Maybe that'll be the next thing. I'm go. actually doing a project. Someone is going to try to do an AI Lincoln. And I'm supposed to be the an advisor who, who sees to it that uh, it has a grounding in reality. If this is the uh, new Disney Hall of Presidents project, then <laughs> that's a good That was upgrade. considered radical at the time. Okay, yeah. here's a great trivia question. Who did the voice of Lincoln for the Disney? The answer? You won't, you won't get it. It's okay. Don't ponder. Yeah. He's so obscure. His name yeah. is Royal Dano. Who's that? D-A-N-O. And he's in the movie The Red Badge of Courage. He's one of the strangers that Audie Murphy encounters as he's fleeing from the battlefield. He's got a really great frontier voice. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. If you'd like to hear more from Harold, he has a number of books out there that you can read, including The President's First, The Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News, a title that we now know he got from JFK. Thank you for your time, Harold. My pleasure, Kenny. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends and family about the show, and write a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to support this show, you can look it on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who has contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode... I don't think you will find a more complicated president than Lyndon Baines Johnson. An FDR acolyte from the Texas Hill Country, he passed the first civil rights legislation since Reconstruction, waged a war on poverty, and fathered Medicare and Medicaid, actions that have saved thousands, if not millions, of lives. But he's also the president most responsible for American involvement in Vietnam, a mistake that paints his ledger red with blood. What do we make of LBJ? I will take my best shot next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.